Um, hey, uh, before we jump into the scriptures, um, as Josh said, we're back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' manifesto for what it means uh, for life in the kingdom of God. It's going to be really, really fun. Um, before we open the text, I want you to just think back to your first day of high school. And for some of you guys, there will be healing prayer after this for, the, for what I'm about to do. Um, but I don't know about you, but for me, it was a rude awakening to transition from being an eighth grader to being a freshman in high school. And uh, particularly, in what it centered around for me was to be cool and to be accepted by my peers. In eighth grade, um, it was like skateboarding to school, uh, bleaching my hair, trying to look like Steve Caballero, and then I made the transition to my freshman year of high school, and it was a completely different social scene. And I remember the first day of school, there were guys with full facial hair in like sports cars coming up to school and I knew I was so far out of my league. Remember the scene from Stranger Things when uh, the new kid, Billy, shows up with his little sister, Maxine, and he's got his windows rolled down and his Trans Am and it's blaring the scorpions? Remember that? And he gets out of the car and all the girls are like, ooh. I was actually there, that's a picture of my life. I remember guys like that getting out of their like Camaros and just feeling like a child as a freshman looking at seniors. Remember that moment? So I went home as a freshman in high school and um, looked in the driveway of my childhood home and realized that in a very short amount of time, I was gonna be driving to school, and yet the car that I had, the option for me to drive was our family station wagon. And some of you guys are actually, you think that's cool. You're like, oh, that's classic. There's nothing classic retro. That is nothing but shame, okay? And uh, take that down. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so I go home and I see, and that's what's in the driveway. That's what I'm gonna be shortly rolling to school, and it's not gonna turn heads the way that I hoped it would. So then I, I went into a strategy. I was a hustler. I had a newspaper route. I had ideas, and I started wearing down my parents telling them, you know, we really got to get rid of the station wagon. And I had like, you know, about 18 months for this process. And I don't know if you have kids, but the wear down technique still works to this day, right? Just constant wearing them down. Guys, I think that the blue station wagon doesn't sound right. Does it sound right to you, mom? I and mean, we got to get rid of that. And what my idea was to get rid of the station wagon, and this is 1990 at this point, and to exchange it for a Jeep Cherokee. And in my mind, it was like from shame to cool, right? This four-wheel drive, just not a station wagon. And so finally, my dad went for it. The time arrived. He you know, probably had to donate the station wagon and bought this used Jeep Cherokee, brought it home. And I remember another scene of being back in my childhood driveway and walking around the Cherokee and just being so proud. Like, this is, this is it. I'm gonna roll up in a few short months. I gotta get my permit first, but I'm gonna roll up in this. And I went around to the back of the car, the tailgate and the bumper area, and to this day, I don't know who did it, either my older sister or my mom, put a Christian fish emblem on the back of the bumper. And it wasn't just like the sticker, it was like the metallic raised, you know what I mean? It was that one. And I was so ticked, and I remember getting down and like with my actual nail, peeling it off of the back of the Cherokee. And I remember this because it broke. 
like into pieces. And I broke it into pieces and I threw it in the trash. And it's interesting as I reflect back on that, at that snapshot of my like 15 and a half year old mind and soul, I was completely devoted to one thing. I wanted to be cool, I wanted to be esteemed by my peers. I mean, that was nothing. I had way greater antics that went on for the next three years of my life to try and have the approval of the people that I deemed worthy. And I was committed to this above all else. It controlled my thoughts and even my decisions. And now as we look at the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of Jesus, Jesus is talking to his disciples about what it's like to have that kind of single-minded devotion, but in the right direction, towards God and his kingdom. So let's read together Matthew chapter six, starting in verse 22. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body, If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Or if you have an older translation, it says, you cannot serve both God and mammon. So today in this text, there are two warnings and an invitation. So first the warnings, the eye and light, God and money. Let's look at each of these. So Jesus uses this really interesting metaphor. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. Now remember, when Jesus is using this ancient image of a lamp, um, picture not a lamp like even in this century where it has glass panes around a lit wick, but picture more like Aladdin's lamp. Just like let that image come to mind. It's probably in cartoon and Disney. But picture an ancient Near Eastern lamp that is a vessel with an, a wick, an open wick, and that's, that's basically fueled by the oil inside it to provide light. Its purpose is to radiate light, right? So what's interesting here though, is this like metaphor on top of metaphor. Um, In this exact wording that Matthew uses, the words used for healthy or unhealthy, have a healthy eye or an unhealthy eye, actually are used elsewhere for generosity or stinginess. So in the ancient world, having a healthy eye was a metaphor that meant that you had a generous heart. Or on the other hand, if you had an unhealthy eye, that meant you were overly concerned with hoarding your resources and wealth. So remember this context, and this has been weeks and weeks, I know, since Josh taught here about um, your treasure and your heart and money, but the context of this teaching right now is about money and treasure. So um, What Jesus is talking about here in the ancient Near East would come quickly, so we have to unpack it a little bit, but it's this idea that having a healthy eye means you're generous. Likewise, in Proverbs um, 28, I think we're going to put this up on the screen, Proverbs 28, verse 22, it says this, a man with an e or woman, with an evil eye is eager for wealth. Evil eye means you're greedy. And then the proverb goes on and it says, and it does not know that poverty is quick to come upon them. So in other words, Jesus is saying there's two ways of seeing the world, of looking out at the life spread before you, 
With an unhealthy eye, it means you see all that you don't have and you crave for more. More money, more things, more experiences, more lust, etc. But the other way to see the world is with a healthy eye, to see all that you do have. And even beyond that, to see those around you that are in need. And then to celebrate with gratitude all the good things in your life, and then share with generosity out of the same. And I've found that in life, like in relationship, and in marriage, or in friendship, that you actually will find what you're looking for. If you're looking at a friend or a family member to find their faults, to analyze everything that they do and say and look for what's wrong with it, you'll find it. But on the other hand, if you practice the discipline of looking for the good in another, you'll find that. Whatever your heart is set on finding oftentimes is what will first come and be in your vision. And I think that's the way of Jesus. It's this way of having a healthy eye, um, a way of joyful, grateful enjoyment of what you do have without guilt, and then also a generosity without limit. So even just right now, we should ask ourselves, what kind of eye do you have? Now, it doesn't stop there. As is often true with Jesus' metaphors and his teachings and his parables, there's multiple layers and multiple directions that you can look at it. So here's another one. What's also interesting in the ancient world, all the way until the Middle Ages, actually, there were two views of how human eyesight worked, okay? Now, I never knew this. If you've had more biology or medical training than me, maybe you already did know this. But there's two views um, in the ancient world. The first one was called intromission, so some thought that the way that eyesight worked was that light from outside the human body passed through the eye and created sight. The other view is called extramission. And this view was that the eye sees by light exiting the body through the eye. Now notice in both of these ancient views, the eye is like a window. And light transfers either through or back out again. And we don't know exactly which view Jesus held. It was interesting, as I was nerding out on this a little bit, you find out like Plato, Socrates, these great minds all the way up through the Middle Ages, Augustine, how people thought about it, particularly around this text. And we don't know exactly which view Jesus held, but I think it actually is helpful to look at both to understand the metaphor. So first, this idea of intromission. So think about it in these terms again. If your eyes are healthy according to Jesus then your whole body will be filled with light. So with intromission, what we look at with our eyes and what we take in with our eyes makes our soul, our interior life, interior world, full of light or full of darkness. This has to do with moral good and evil. And the emphasis here is that what we look at actually transmits from our eyes into our heart and inner being. So Jesus, as we know, is super, super serious in other teachings, just a couple uh, before this in the Sermon on the Mount, about what comes into our eyes and what we look at. In an earlier teaching about lust, Jesus says these famous words, if your eye causes you to stumble, take radical action and cut it out, right? 
So we know that an important part of living as God's people in the reality of his kingdom is that we make really wise choices with what we look at with our eyes. And denying any kind and all sexual lust with our eyes is a high value to Jesus. And you know, as there's been a current conversation around equality and honor for girls and women, not only in our city and in the workplace and in the church and globally, um, this is something, a conversation that um, I've been with the Bridgetown leadership and I know Josh and others here, this is something that we know is super important. We are at a critical moment in a culture, not just in media and politics, but in the church and in our jobs and our neighborhoods to fight for and to see equality and honor for all girls and women. And of course, we're just following the example of Jesus in this. Jesus was super radical in his culture and time in how he honored and elevated the status of women, and he welcomed them as co-leaders in the kingdom of God. We know that. But it's worth saying to all the guys, we can't work for safe and fair treatment of women and at the same time lust after them. It's impossible. And I just want to say that if you're, um, to the guys, if you're a guy here and you're not winning the fight with your eyes against porn and lust, um, I know that the leadership here wants to help you. And that we have groups here, and we have them at Bridgetown as well, called 423, 423 Men, 423 Women. And these groups are where some of the most humble and courageous men and women that I've ever met are finding new success in this battle. And if that's you, um, go online, sign up anonymously, and um, get that help. It's an amazing support group. But the struggle with what we intake in our eyes and how it affects our heart is different for everyone, right? And so maybe for you, it's um, social media. And, and your feed and, you know, the, the constant barrage of what current culture says is beautiful, which we all know are highly curated and edited photos. But this, this can feed that cancer of comparison. And maybe you look at your Instagram feed and you're left feeling insecure about how you see your body and your looks. Even though your Father in Heaven has created you unique and beautiful and He absolutely delights in how he created you. But that's a difficult thing for many of us. I have teenagers and I talk to them and um, it's intense. It's an intense battle and it's a new world that we live in. So we need to ask ourselves, just bluntly, where is darkness getting into your eyes and heart? What darkness do you need to protect your eyes from? And maybe for some, this is a call um, to abstain from something that you've been intaking, some kind of media, and replace it instead with a new discipline in the new year of worship and scriptures to fill your eyes deliberately with the pure light. Jesus says, if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be healthy and full of light. But you know, the other way to look at the metaphor is extra mission, right? So this is this idea with what is in our heart and then radiates out of us. And Jesus, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, talks about this as well. He says, the mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart. So whatever is in my heart will eventually come out, right? I don't know if you've ever been in youth group or seen this example, but you take a sponge and you fill it with a dark liquid like grape juice, right? And then you squeeze it, and what happens? 
the dark liquid comes out. And then the example would be, you take a sponge and you fill it with a clear liquid, like water, and then you squeeze the sponge, and what comes out? Clear water, right? And that's the simplicity. I remember doing that for my kids when they were little. I should probably do it again. They need it. <laughs> Great kids, but, you know, I need it. Uh, but the point is, whatever is in your heart comes out. So we ask ourselves, does light and life, love, ooze out of my heart and my mouth? If I did an audit of my speech, what would it look like? And this is why the practices of Jesus that we're doing at Bridgetown and at Van City are so important because it's this intentional training to become the kinds of people who live like Jesus and act like Jesus without even thinking about it. I mean, does that make sense? Like we do these practices with intentionality so that someday they're natural, so that our heart motivations and our lifestyle is naturally like Jesus without even thinking so we're meant to live with this fire of God's spirit at the center of our being that just naturally rushes out of all that we say and all that we do. So Jesus is using these examples to probe the condition of the heart. Is your heart full of light or darkness, good or evil? And he kind of seals it by saying, and if your heart is full of darkness, how dark that will be. Now, the next teaching um, takes a logical step forward. You guys okay? Yeah. You ready for the next one? Yeah. All right, let's do this. So the next one, he kind of pushes a logical step forward. Not only does he warn his disciples about the eye-heart connection, what you see affecting your heart, but also now he moves the reality a little bit further, and he says that he warns them, really, that this reality that whatever you set your eyes and your heart on eventually becomes your master. And at this point, we cue, master. Okay, maybe not. Did anybody? Anybody? Okay. I just feel I'm like six feet from the basis. It's really loud. I feel like this is it's a great spot for that joke. Was it, maybe I need to do another master? What, I felt like it didn't really land. It felt, Eric felt that? All right, I wanted it to be bigger in my mind. It was a bigger moment for me, for me at least. You know they remastered that, right? I went by Everyday Music and there was a sign and it said, remaster. Like master of others, but remaster. See what they did? Felt good. There's some music I don't feel like I should bring home. That's one of them. Anyways, let's transition to the next part before we digress much further than that. Um, so verse 24, Jesus says these famous words. No one can serve two masters. Okay. Um, and notice he says it twice. Um, he's not saying it's unspiritual, it's unwise. Jesus says it's not possible. It's impossible to have two masters. Jesus wants to save his people from something that actually won't work out in the end. So picture Jesus as your good father, and he's sitting down and he's like, hey, let me just share some wisdom here. Let me just tell you, it's like Proverbs. Let me just tell you how life works. This is how life works. You cannot serve two opposing masters. Now, the older translation says, as I um, alluded to earlier, um, not no one can serve God in money, but no one can serve God in mammon. And mammon is capitalized, right? So this is a pagan name of a deity of wealth in the first century. Really interesting, right? And remember, 
that there are these little g gods in the world and in the scriptures. These are spiritual powers and authorities, and they're at work in the world. And that's why um, with the Ten Commandments, God says to Moses, you know, you'll have no other gods before me. God is, the God, capital G God, is conceding there are other spiritual powers. And he's saying, don't worship them, don't follow them, follow me only, right? Remember that? It's important part. Um, so, so this is a reality. Mammon is a reminder that, spirit, that, uh, that wealth is a spiritual force with tremendous attracting power to draw us into its orbit. There's an enslaving power to the god of mammon or money. And once it has its hooks in you, it drags you where it wills. And Jesus says, no one can serve two masters that are opposed to each other. The marching orders of mammon and the marching orders of God oppose each other and go in different directions. And this is true just in common life, right? You can't get on I-5 and head towards Canada north and towards Mexico south. You can't go in two different directions at once. You're either going north or you're going south. There's no possible way to move opposite directions at the same time. So also, you can't serve God and the God of money. So Jesus calls his followers to single-hearted devotion. And you know, in the story of God, one of the most beautiful uh, metaphors for God and his people, particularly we see this in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, is marriage covenant. God actually says that he's married to his people. So if you read through the Old Testament, um, especially in the prophets, his biggest, it's like a court trial. There's so many beautiful metaphors. One of them is like a court trial, and it's basically Yahweh, the king of the universe, bringing Israel to trial for adultery. They cheated on their one and only faithful spouse with these other gods, right? And this is that kind of heart. This is Jesus calling us as his people to be faithful, to be single-hearted in this relationship with him. So the question for us tonight is, okay, that makes sense. I've heard that before. Thank you. I get it. Um, but how? How do we do this, right? How do we keep our eyes focused and filled with light? How do we keep free from this power of any lesser gods, whatever that is, that want to master us? How do we keep our eyes and hearts set right? And I think that first it begins with realizing the one whose eyes are set constantly on you. And there's this incredible story by this um, Catholic, uh, has anybody read Tattoos on Your Heart? Have you ever heard that? It's this, it's this incredible story of this Catholic um, priest as a young guy, he goes and he moves into East LA, into like South Central gangland, and basically becomes a missionary to um, the Latino gang culture and spends his entire life in ministry serving them in this incredible way. And he starts Homeboy Industries, everybody heard of it? He basically creates jobs and helps all these um, men and women out of that lifestyle. It's beautiful. And he tells this story of his friend Bill. And I love the way he writes it, so let me just read uh, some of this for you. He says, Bill was uh, a middle-aged man who took time to care for his dad who was dying of cancer. Bill's father had become a frail man dependent on his son to do everything for him. 
Though he was physically wasting away from the disease, his mind remained alert and lively. And in the role reversal that's common when an adult child takes care of a dying parent, Bill would put his dad to bed and then read him to sleep exactly as his father had once done for him in childhood. So Bill would read from some novel and his dad would lie there staring at his son, smiling. And Bill, exhausted from the day's care and work, would plead with his dad, look, here's the idea. I read to you, you fall asleep. His father would impishly apologize and dutifully close his eyes, but this wouldn't last for long. Soon enough, his dad would pop one eye open and smile at his son. And his son would catch him and he would whine, come on. And his dad would dutifully oblige until he couldn't any longer. And I would just pop open to catch a glimpse of his son. And this went on and on, night after night. And after his father had passed, Bill was reflecting back and he knew that this evening ritual was just the case of a father who couldn't take his eyes off of his kid. And the point is, how much more God? You have a heavenly father who can't keep his eyes off of you. Anthony DeMello writes, Behold the one beholding you and smiling. What if there is this reality that the God of the universe actually knows everything about you and delights in you? Behold the one who's beholding you and smiling. What if the God of the universe looks at you and he knows everything about you? And he looks down and seeing you causes him to smile. See, I think the key to keeping our eye and heart set right is first receiving the gaze of the Father and then simply casting your eyes back to him. And mystics and Christians before us have called this beholding God. And one of the best things in my life ever has been um, these experiences over the past couple years of just these moments of receiving God's love poured out into my heart by the Holy Spirit. And for me, oftentimes this happens either alone in the morning at home or in times of corporate worship and reflection like here on a Sunday night. And um, not that long ago, I was you know, um, in that place, evening gathering, worshiping, just kind of receiving, and just had that sense of like, God, you're right here, and I'm here. Like, what do you want to say to me? What do you want to show me? And I had this image that I've never had before, but an image of a father holding a baby, right? And I'm like, okay, you want to show me that? That's cool, God, all right? And and immediately, um, as a father myself, as a leader in the church, Um, I naturally identify as a parent leader type person, and I'm like, yeah, that is how I feel. Like, I feel like a father often. I'm thinking about my kids. And then he said, no, you're the child. And now all of a sudden, the whole metaphor flips, right? So I don't don't know about you, but I'm like a 43-year-old man. I don't normally picture myself as a baby, right? But now I'm like, okay, so you say that's me. So I'm imagining myself as this baby held in my father's arms and just looking straight up into his face. And I realized that, um, like a baby, I need to just be held by my father. I need to look up, and I need to see his gaze 
of delight, his desire just to hold me, his smile over me as a very helpless child in his arms. And you remember what, what Matthew says earlier in his first century account of Jesus of Nazareth is what's true for Jesus is true for you, that there's this voice that breaks through heaven and declares over you and says, you are my beloved in whom I'm wonderfully pleased. Your father delights over you. And I just wonder in this space, in this moment right now, tonight, can you receive that? I had a sense even as we were praying tonight and getting ready, ready to meet as a gathering that there were some that that's, that's what you need to hear. Like this is it. That was it for you. That's it. You just need to hear that and receive that. That there's a father, the father of the universe who knows you, delights in you and has set his gaze on you, that he loves you. And anything that stands in the way of that is not of him. Push that to the side and try to receive that. So how do we keep our eyes set right and our hearts full of light? How do we keep from serving God only and not giving in to the siren call of hedonism, power, sex, money? First, I think it's to realize God's deep love for us. That he's like that dad that can't keep his eyes off of his kid. He can't keep from smiling when he thinks of you. Then from that place of receiving his love and approval, we look back and set our eyes on him. In the words of the New Testament, in Hebrews, we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, to behold him. And the best way I, I personally know how to do this at this moment in my life is, again, gathering in this kind of worship atmosphere, which I love, but then also it's to get up in the morning before all everybody in my household's up to get up to make coffee so I can see straight and to open the scriptures and to meet with Jesus there. And it's kind of old school and it's kind of, it's just the reality of life in the kingdom of God. I believe that Jesus got up early when it was still dark to meet with the Father and I think that's still, it's hard, man. I know some of you guys have little kids or some of you guys are in college and you're like, I can't get up. I know, it's hard. It is so hard. But it's the most meaningful time and I'm coming to love it more and more and more. And you know, I had this analogy come to mind, this idea of beholding God, looking in the face of God. What is that like? How do we do that? I use scriptures to kind of ignite my imagination. I have some favorite passages, Daniel 7, Revelation 7, these beautiful, um, Paul's description, this poem in um, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, just these like cosmic visions of who is Jesus. I need that and wrap my imagination around who Jesus is. And for me, what it's like is like going to the art museum, right? So you guys have been to the art museum? If you haven't been, you really should. It's a good experience as an adult human in North America. Go to an art museum. But um, you stand in front of a, a, a painting, um, some installation, and it's always shocking to me how big they are, right? You look at something on your phone or on your laptop, you're like, oh, it's a cool painting. But then you go stand in front, and it's just giant. Usually, I mean, a big piece. We were at, my wife and I went to go see this piece, this uh, exhibit, and one of these pieces was probably like the length of this stage, you know, about eight feet tall and about 30 feet long, and multiple people were standing at different spots just beholding this beauty, right? Someone standing here and then here and here. It was just amazing, right? And you stand there and you just like look at details and then you, you know, you kind of zoom out and look at the big picture. And it's just this incredible experience that hopefully moves you to awe 
and worship. And I think that's kind of what it's like with Jesus. We open the scriptures, we ignite our imagination through the descriptions there, we look at the details, we pan out, and we get overwhelmed with the majesty of Jesus, the closeness of the Spirit, the love of the Father. So, you know, to conclude, um, here's an invitation. Two warnings and an invitation. The invitation is this. I just want to invite you to cut out anything this week that might be letting darkness into your eyes and replace it with meditation on God through the scriptures. To fix your eyes on Jesus as you meet him there and let him fill your eyes with light to fullness and overflowing.